Welcome into The Harvest. I'm Andrew Stroud. What's the number one thing keeping modern believers from seeking first the kingdom of God and living lives worthy of His calling? While it may be an impossible question to answer, near the top of that list has to be our relationship with digital technology. Whether it's social media platforms like Facebook and TikTok, streaming sites like Netflix and YouTube, our widespread addiction to internet pornography, or the escapism offered by online gaming, we are being radically reshaped by this technology. My guest today is Samuel James, who's written a new book titled Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. Samuel is an editor for Crossway Books. He's also a writer and regular contributor to World Magazine and the Gospel Coalition, and his work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, National Review, Time, and First Things. You can subscribe to his blog, Digital Liturgies, over on Substack, and I would strongly encourage you to do that. Samuel is a leading voice on how digital technologies are misshaping us as believers and what we can do to change that. I'm grateful to have him on the show and hope you're encouraged by the conversation. Samuel James, thanks for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to have a conversation with you about technology and the way it's shaping society, shaping culture, but more to the point, how it's misshaping our lives as modern day followers of Jesus. I found you to be one of the few voices in the church today who seems to be giving this careful thought and I would say sounding the alarm. Um, and so two questions, maybe just to get us started on in this conversation. First, why is this a topic that you've decided to focus on and why aren't more Christian voices talking about it? And then secondly, on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being the most concerned, how concerned do you think we should be about technology misshaping our lives of faith? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, you know, let me talk a little bit about my own backstory there. Um, so digital technology, in particular, internet technology, has been a big part of my life, like probably, I imagine, for most of your audience, uh, basically since I was a teenager. Um, so I'm, I'm not necessarily what you would call a digital native. I'm 34, so that means I distinctly remember a time where uh, our household did not have uh, internet access. Uh, I remember when we got dial-up internet access uh, and the, the familiar hum and, and staticky noise that uh, uh, became part of our, our household routine with that. Um, but it was really as a teenager and especially when uh, Facebook uh, was kind of released to the public that the power of the internet to, to really influence my emotions and my intuitions, uh, I think, really became apparent. I, you know, mm. most people, I got a Facebook account for you know relational reasons because of, of friends were getting it. It was pretty new at the time, so it was kind of exciting. Uh, you know, if there were any girls in your class that you liked and you knew they were getting Facebook. Well, there you go. Facebook's <laughs> where you need to be. Um, so Facebook uh, kind of kicked off my experience of what we uh, now call social media. Uh, and over the years, it was it was clear to me that social media wasn't just kind of this 
isolated hobby that I could enjoy and just kind of move on from at will, uh, it increasingly just played a, an enormous role in my life. It kind of started to mediate most of my relationships. I would spend more time kind of scrolling a person's platform and sending them messages than I would spend actually talking to them in real life. And, and increasingly that was true of other people as well. We would uh, kind of talk about when we got together, just you know how kind of important the internet and social media had become. Um, and then around the time, 2015, 2016, um, I, especially as uh, political culture in America uh, was very polarized and, and opinions on all sides of the 2016 election were very high, I started to see several people uh, in my life uh, become really affected by what they were reading online. Uh, and it was clear that there was some kind of discontinuity between the kind of content that they were consuming on the internet and the kind of person that they would present in real life. So I can think of specific people that uh, were very pleasant and very almost, uh, you know, apologetically uh, polite in real life. Uh, but then online, they were bombastic. They were uh, very kind of sure of themselves and they were angry toward people who disagreed with them. And, and what, it became, what became obvious to me was that um, the internet was actually kind of creating kind of this dual personality. And I started to see it in myself as well. I, I realized that I would talk about things and I would say things in a certain way online that just didn't really seem like how I felt or talked uh, in, in offline life. And it seemed like the content that I was consuming was having some kind of formative effect on me. Um, and around the time that I really started thinking about this, I discovered Nicholas Carr's book, um, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Uh, it was published in 2010, so uh, social media was still pretty uh, novel at the time that it was released. But Carr's book really used uh, cognitive science and data uh, and just kind of philosophical arguments to really make a compelling case that the internet uh, is a just a qualitatively different language technology than anything that has come before it. And the main upshot of Nicholas Carr's book is that as we kind of engage with ideas and with each other through the web, we start to think in distinctly hmm. internet-shaped ways. And this has uh, direct impact on uh, things that we believe are true versus false, how we understand arguments, and then ultimately how we interact with each other. We become internet-shaped people. We, we have minds that are, uh, uh, science, Carr calls this in the book, the brain's plasticity. So we have cognitive plasticity, which means our minds actually rewire themselves in response to strong stimuli. And so when I finished Nicholas Carr's book, I realized that not only was Carr kind of describing things that I could feel but couldn't name at the time, I realized that the theological implications of what he was saying were very, very high. And it didn't really seem like anyone I knew was talking this way about internet technology. It seemed when you talked with fellow Christians about the internet, it was mostly about avoiding bad content. Uh, so like, you know, what kind of filter should you set up or what kind of, uh, you know, website should you not visit? But no one actually talked about the internet as inherently having kind of like the shaping value. And so that's kind of what led me into this train of thought. Um, and in terms of in terms of why more Christians weren't thinking that way and, and why more don't, um, I, I don't necessarily think it's a 
it's a problem in how we do theology. I think rather um, it's it has more to do with the fact that we just don't tend to think of technology in general as as being anything but neutral. Uh, we tend to think that technology is totally neutral and it, it's, it will always simply give us what we ask for it. So if a person with bad desires uses the internet, the internet's going to give them bad things. If a person with good desires uses it, uh, same thing, good things. Uh, so what depends is what the user asks it to do. And there's a sense of truth to that. Uh, but actually, it, it was technology critics like Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman uh, who were more concerned about television back in the in the 60s and 70s, who really showed me that actually all technology, especially technology of communication, has kind of an inherent logic. Because this technology exists, it is telling me that it should exist and that I should do, be able to do certain things on it. And Carr makes this point in the shallows very convincingly. Um, so I think Christians are just not attuned to thinking of of physical objects, of physical realities, uh, as having kind of this non-neutral uh, shape to their character. Um, and in terms of the, the future of technology and, and whether how concerned we should be about it, um, I, I think that's a good question. And I think a lot depends really on whether we as Christians uh, can use correct categories and can name things for what they are. I think where we get in trouble is when we don't really have any careful categories of thought for the tools we use. And so what happens is we end up using the tools the way the inventors of these tools uh, tell us to use them or the marketing of these tools tells us to use them. And inevitably what happens to use uh, another writer, Cal Newport, to use his uh, terminology, we end up serving technology's values instead of making technology serve our values. So I think to the degree that Christians can think clearly, can think biblically about technology, about what technology is, about how it can do good and bad, but is not, is not in itself neutral, has specific effects. I think if we can name that and we can walk in light of that, I think that will be a big part of navigating this wisely. We're not going to go back to a non-technological age. We're not going to go back to a pre-internet age at all. And even if we could, I don't think biblically there's any reason to, to want to do that. But I think that wisdom in this technological age, in the internet age, requires us to be able to name things for what they are. Yeah, that's a, that's a great introduction. And I think maybe a first step that I take from a lot of what you just shared there is just the understanding that, you know, technology is not just a tool that we use to accomplish things that we want to accomplish. It's not just a tool that we use to shape the world. A technology is actually a tool that is also shaping us. So it, it's 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 shaping in both directions. And I think you could make the argument, especially with information technology, that the shaping is is happening much more in the direction of technology shaping us, changing the way that we think, like you were talking about, um, versus us using it to to change. Uh, our culture or to accomplish uh, whatever objectives we have in, in the way that we use it, or even just thinking of passive entertainment. Uh, it's when it comes to information technology, I'm not sure that there is such a thing as just 
you know, passive entertainment, um, that there's something happening to us as we engage with these new technologies. And, and to that point, um, I, I gave you a couple of big questions there at the outset. So it was a lot to take on, but, you know, on a scale of one to 10, I know this is something that you've picked up on and that you've, you've written quite extensively about, you've done a lot of, of great thinking on it. Um, but on a scale of one to 10, how concerned do you think we should be as believers in this modern world of how this is affecting us? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, <laughs> well, the one through 10, I, I'm not sure. Like, I, on, <laughs> in, you know, in one sense, it should be 10. Like we should be uh, very, con- very concerned about it. Uh, on, on the one hand, like I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian who believes that God is sovereign. I, I, you know, I don't lay up at night wondering if, if, you know, truth will win out in the end and if, if the Lord will reign. So, um, so in that sense, maybe like a five, I, so I, I, I'm not exactly sure how to quantify it. Um, I do think, however, that Christians should recognize that this question is not going to become less urgent. Like there's, this is not a passing fad. Um, you know, the, the internet in case anyone is still wondering is here to stay. And not only that, but the trajectory of our digital technology uh, is certainly headed in a more immersive way. So we're talking about virtual reality. We're talking about things like augmented reality, which is where, you know, if you have your phone and you're kind of opening the camera app and you have a, a game that like shows things in, on your camera that are not actually there in real life, but it kind of looks like they are, that's augmented reality. And you know, things like virtual reality, augmented reality, and now chat GPT, these artificial intelligence software the, the entire end game of a lot of these technologies is to become incredibly immersive, to kind of create an mm. environment where we actually don't need to ever stop using them. Because if we, you know, if we're hungry, we can just order food online. Or if we, we can't mm. go to sleep, we can just kind of program something to help us go to sleep. These are becoming uh, tools that are uh, intended to make us very dependent on them. And so recognizing that that is the trajectory that we seem to be headed I think it really falls on Christians to be able to articulate our theology of technology and what the gospel would have us do. Uh, and it's it's not going to do to simply say, well, these are just fads that will pass. I think this is clearly where um, hmm. the culture is headed. And it's not simply about preserving our own uh, peace of mind or our own godliness, but it's about being able to speak prophetically and helpfully to a lost world around us. Yeah. I, I appreciate the, I appreciate that, especially the idea of, you know, having, having a difficult time quantifying the one to 10 and, and you're right that, that we do believe that God is sovereign and that ultimately his purposes are going to be accomplished. His will is, is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, but if I were to rephrase that and say, when I think about, um, threats to the faithfulness of the church in America, um, in my own view, this is at the top of the list. So that's what makes it a little surprising that we maybe haven't identified it and talked about it more within um, the Christian community at large. Um, and I, I think we see there's a larger conversation happening, just like you mentioned the book, The Shallows. There there are people, you know, Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of work on this about how um, technology is um having a negative influence on, uh, society, uh, uh, c- civility. Um, but like you said, I, 
your voice, I think, is is basically taking that conversation and bringing it specifically into um, the Christian world and, and the American church. So I think it's a larger challenge facing us uh, here, well, really worldwide, but certainly here in the U.S. And uh, I think it's the number one thing that that we're up against over the next five to 10 years is can we get our, our, our arms around um, a right view of technology and a right use of technology. Um, and I know that that's, you've got a book coming out this year that actually that that's, I think the, the central theme of uh, your book, digital liturgies, that's going to be coming out later this year. So we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about that as we go here, but you wrote an article a few months back um, in mere orthodoxy called untangling theology from digital technology. And, and it's kind of a mouthful there, but the idea of, you know, theology and technology and untangling those two things. Um, but part of that article was you walking through how technology itself is, it's, it's a thing in motion. It's evolving, it's developing, and it's changed quite a bit, even over the past 15 years, if we went back to say 2007. So could you share a little bit about how technology itself has changed during the last 15 years, just to kind of set the, the stage for where we're going today. Absolutely. So, um, you know, when I, when I remember my family getting internet access, what I remember is that we had a large personal computer that was situated on a desk in the family room. And to access the internet, you actually had to be seated, uh, sitting at this computer that was hooked up to a phone jack in the wall. Um, so there was a, there was a kind of physical given stationary element to it all. Like you actually had to be physically at the computer. And so what that meant was that quote unquote going online was something that you had to choose to do. And it wasn't something that you could just do whenever, wherever it was something you actually had to seek out. And what's obviously changed in the last 15 years is that, the vast majority of people, probably in the Western world, but certainly in the U.S., the vast majority of people in the world access the web not through large computers that have to be plugged into the wall, but through phones that go with them wherever they go. Hmm. So one way to kind of verbalize this transformation is to say that um, the web has gone from a tool to an ambience. So if we picture a tool, a tool kind of only does one thing and it, and, and it occupies a given space. An ambience is something that is created by something being everywhere. Uh, so it's just, you, you know, if I'm talking to you, you have a phone maybe in your pocket uh, and you're receiving emails and text messages. Uh, and so you're online right now, even though we're talking to each other. Uh, if I go to a church, uh, I'm sitting in a pew with people who have phones in their pockets that are uh, maybe even you know taking notes or something like that. Hmm. So there's a sense in which we're all online. The internet has gone from what we might call uh, opt-in, which means normally by default you're not online and you have to opt to go online. It's gone from that to an opt-out, which means your default is that you are exposed in some way to the web. And in order to withdraw from that, you actually have to take specific action. Um, so that's probably the single biggest transformation. And of course, the smartphone is what facilitates that. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, I love that language of a tool to ambience and just kind of understanding how that in, in itself is 
is um, a huge shift in the way that we're interacting with with technology. So, so um, how do you how do you feel? I wanted to to maybe talk through some of the ways that we see technology misshaping us. And again, this is something I would encourage people to subscribe to your Substack. Uh, you blog regularly at a Substack called Digital Liturgies. It's the, the same name as your book coming out later this year. In fact, you just uh, sent out a post today, which was great. Um, I hope people sign up when they hear this, um, hear this episode uh, because Often I see your posts highlighting one of those ways that that technology is misshaping us. And even in this post from Mere Orthodoxy, where you, you talk about a, um, unentangling technology from uh, untangling technology from untangling theology from digital technology. You can blame my editor for that. <laughs> I figured it wasn't you. You're, 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 um, but even even in that article, uh, you, you walk through several ways that it's it's changing us. And so one of them is just an inability to actually have uh, meaningful conversations. You know, we almost are conversing in in memes and we're, we're, we're lobbying our point of view versus actually engaging uh, in meaningful conversation that that produces a, a better way of thinking, a better way of understanding the other. Um, you talked about uh, Neil Postman. I hope everyone will read that book. Uh, this guy was a prophet, <laughs> mm -hmm. not in the Christian sense, but he wrote back in the 70s and 80s, like you said. Um, he, his, his most famous book is probably Amusing Ourselves to Death. And this was pre-internet, uh, essentially pre-personal computer, but he was aware of how these technologies have the power to shape us and, and actually cause us to become a different kind of person. They also shape our conversation, the way that we interact with one another. So. What are some of those ways that um, you see the technology misshaping us, at, specifically as followers of, of Jesus? What are some of the things that we should be aware of? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think one thing that I see a lot of nowadays, and I see this in myself as well, is that we tend to kind of take our cue in theology and the Christian life from kind of whatever the digital algorithm is telling us to think about. Um, so what I what I have seen a lot of in the last couple of years is uh, you know people kind of trying to do theology and their the way that they do it and the way they articulate it has a certain kind of um, very uh, combative feel uh, and it feels like they're they're always kind of correcting something they're always kind of trying to rebuke uh, some particular article or some particular famous person or something like that. And it, it gives the flavor of Christian theology a very reactive uh, uh, feel so that you're constantly, you're not really so much thinking, okay, how do I put the whole Bible together? How do all these doctrines kind of fit together? And what are the things that, I, that scripture says I should emphasize versus the things that Kind of fall into the into second and third tier. Um, the question is, um, when, when we're doing theology online, the question often becomes, well, what can actually generate the most likes? What can generate the most shares? What can make my content, uh, you know, give me that 
cognitive feedback loop where, oh, I get, I get likes, I get retweets. And so I'm, I'm more likely to do this behavior, which if you, if you read anything about the way social media is engineered, that's the whole goal. Uh, that's, that's how these <laughs> apps were designed was to, to hook us uh, into addiction by giving us affirmation based on things that do well uh, online. And so the way theology gets affected by that is eventually people start to think, well, actually the most important theological thing that I can be talking about is, and they say something that is just basically the controversy of the day, right? It's, it's, right. Now, it may be true, it may be important, but it may mm. not be. It may be totally ephemeral, it may be totally temporary, uh, and it may be uh, a complete misallocation of Christian resources to... Uh, to really emphasize this, and it may be causing disunity that is entirely unnecessary. Um, mm. But, it, but that's, that's one way that kind of the view from social media and the view from the web can really um, disfigure uh, Christian theology. Christian mm. theology is not meant uh, to be done with an eye toward fame. It's, it's not right. meant to be done trying to kind of triangulate what can actually make me notable. In fact, uh, if you go back and read into the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus tells a group of Jews who are kind of questioning him. He says, how can you believe in me when you receive glory from one another? And mm. right there, you have a profound thought when it comes to social media, when we're giving each other glory, when literally there's a there's an entire kind of social economy based on me kind of affirming you and you kind of affirming me, that is a threat to Christian formation because Jesus clearly says that seeking the glory that comes from God is impossible when you're actively seeking the glory that comes from other people. Um, so that's just one example among several of how Christian theology can be compromised by a medium. Yeah, I um, I think you've used, I don't know if you coined this term or this phrase, but um, a technology-shaped theology. And that's that's definitely what I hear you emphasizing right there. And it's it's so true. Like there's some of our listeners may have heard of this idea of the the important being held captive to the urgent. So we end up yes. focusing on and talking about the things that are urgent instead of which may or may not be, probably aren't the things that are are most important. And in a similar way, I think uh, technology and this this need to trend, or just the reality that certain topics are going to be trending. How how it happens, I don't necessarily know, but you can see this. I think most, um, especially on Twitter and Christian Twitter, like yeah. at any given day of the week, you can log on and there'll be some new. Um, topic that everyone is is basically swarming to to talk about and to give their their take on. So that's one thing is just uh, not allowing our our theology to be um, steered by technology. And if we're not intentional, like you said, opting out and being aware of that, then it's going to happen because it is happening. And we see this in the news cycle at, at a broader level that at any mm -hmm. given time, you know, whatever the outrage is this week, if, if we could hyperspace two weeks from now, it's probably not even going to be <laughs> in, right. talked about. So the same thing is happening, I think, when it comes to our theology and what we're choosing to focus on. The other thing that um, you mentioned in there, though, is what you've described as uh, negative epistemology. Um, so what what is that and why should we be alert to it? Yeah, great question. So uh, epistemology, just for anyone who's listening who may not know kind of what that word means, 
uh, it just refers to kind of the question of how do we know things. So epistemology is a is a branch of philosophy that says how can we know what's real, what uh, what actually happens when we know truth, what is what does truth mean, that kind of thing. So it's it's just a kind of a the, the science of of truth basically, and. The, yeah, the term negative epistemology, um, which I've I've used in my writing, and you know whether or not it's a helpful term for everyone, I it may not be, uh, but I it, I kind of like it because it describes what happens when the question facing me as a thinker stops being what is true and how do I believe it, and becomes. What do the people I dislike believe, and what, why, how fast can I get to the opposite conclusion? So, what happens when you have social media, and social media becomes the primary way of, that people read and learn and interact with each other, which is, I think, true for many, many people in the world today? Um, what, what happens, and Nicholas Carr talks a little bit about this in his book, uh, is that the line between comprehension and reflection and social interaction becomes totally blurred. And that's actually really important because we know scientifically that to read with an eye for being accepted or for uh, trying to disprove something is a different kind of reading than when we simply approach a text on its own merits and say, I just want to comprehend this text. It's different. Mm -hmm. So there's some examples in The Shallows where he talks about studies that were uh, administered to to certain people and they were give they were all given the same text and the first group was uh, shown access to like comments that other people had left on the text and the other group was not given access to those comments and the two groups had radically different interpretations of the text and what he proves is that the comments actually played a formative role in shaping how they responded to the text and so negative epistemology is kind of what is seems inevitable when you combine a highly polarized culture with this way of comprehension that is that is uh, where the lines between social interaction and comprehension have become completely blurred to the effect of I can't even consider an argument or a truth claim without being able and and being interested to find out who among the people I dislike or disagree with online, what are they saying about this? And I should go the other way. And once you start to see this, like once you have a category for it, it's absolutely everywhere. <laughs> Things become true or false based on who believes them. And it's right. it, we really are approaching a, a time in our culture. And I talked a little bit about this in the piece from today, the newsletter piece. We really are approaching a time in our in our society where no one actually cares what the facts are. They care about whether this means that they and their tribe are good and the other tribe is bad. And we've really stopped asking questions like, well, is that actually true or does this actually happen? We just want things to kind of fuel our sense of self-righteousness. And so negative epistemology is what happens when we just stop pursuing the truth as we're made to as humans and we start kind of outsourcing the role of outsourcing thinking itself to our political and tribal uh, enmities. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes things are true today uh, because it's associated with someone that I identify with. And the very same thing is 
is untrue tomorrow because someone I disagree with is saying it. I, I, right. I've definitely seen that, which is just mind blowing. Um, so that's negative epistemology. And, and if we think about these two things that, that we've kind of covered so far, uh, technology uh, shaped theology, that really gets to what we end up spending time engaged around and, and, and giving thought to, uh, to the extent that we are actually thinking critically about it. And then with, with negative epistemology, it gets into how we end up thinking about those things or how we go about trying to discern what's true, what's false, what's right, what's wrong. And, and in both cases, this is a pretty big shift away from how believers have historically tried to understand uh, the whole counsel of God, <laughs> you know, uh, you really, instead of going to the source document, the scriptures themselves and trying to wrestle with because this isn't something that is, is easy. You know, Paul tells us in Ephesians that, that we need to be careful how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Right. And he talks about, try to find out <laughs> what is pleasing to the Lord. So it's not something that's just going to naturally come to us. It's going to require effort. But we need to be looking in the right. We need to be looking in the right source material, which is the scriptures mm -hmm. themselves. Um, and then we need to be, we need to learn how to think. And I, I think that's one of the things that we're really losing, is the ability to to just think critically. So what we think about and and how we're, we're thinking itself is really being shaped uh, by these technologies. Absolutely. And, and a great example of that is even in the book of Proverbs. Uh, so one of the big themes of Proverbs is that intuition can be often be fallible. Um, so you have Proverbs like uh, someone seems right until another. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. The, the first person to state his case seems right until someone else comes and questions him. Um, and so the, and then there are portraits of intuition gone wrong throughout the Proverbs of of kind of this simple man who's just, you know, walking uh, in the wrong part of town at the wrong part of day and ends up falling hmm. into sin. Um, th this idea that our base instincts are not uh, good things to kind of hitch our, our lives to, um, that wisdom calls us to something far more careful and far more critical. And, and when we're talking about the internet in particular, um, social media especially is so designed to uh, exact out of us strong base instincts. So we're, we're simply kind of going from one post to the next and our emotions are kind of in this neutral hum until we see something that gets us worked up. And again, this is intentional. This is the way social media is designed. This is the way these uh, platforms are intentionally engineered. Um, and so what, one thing that we see on, on the internet is that the, the, the distance, the kind of natural spiritual wall that the Bible tries to construct between, uh, between the way we live our lives and kind of our knee-jerk reactions, that wall is constantly eroded online because it's all tends to be kind of this knee-jerk, this hyper-reactionary mm -hmm. thing. Uh, when in fact the wisdom literature in Scripture would tell us to be very, uh, very careful of our of our base instincts, uh, particularly anger. Uh, mm. Anger online is practically considered sacred, uh, and you're 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 hardly online if you're not angry about something. Uh, but the Bible is not ambivalent toward anger. There, you know, righteous people get can become angry. 
Uh, but righteous people, uh, perpetually angry people have a hard time being righteous. And that's, that's simply what the Bible says, forsake wrath, forsake anger. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness that God requires. Um, so when we talk about the internet, we talk about wisdom, we see ways that the very shape of the internet is designed to kind of make us rely on these, these base instincts, these emotions like anger. Uh, and then we see in Christian wisdom is that we're actually supposed to be able to, to put those things uh, in their proper place and to take a broader and a more biblical perspective on our lives. Yeah, that's a theme that you've written on quite a bit just in terms of, you know, how we we are presenting ourselves in our online lives versus, you know, you went back and you talked about in 2016 and seeing people that you knew personally who the way you experienced them in real life was one way, but then um, the way that they were presenting online was radically different. Um, I found that in my own life, uh, I, I became aware of that probably back in, I don't know, 08 or 09, I was on a chat, a chat board uh, on ESPN. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit, you're living in Louisville, Kentucky. I grew up in Kentucky. You're possibly a Cardinals fan, uh, but everyone in the state of Kentucky outside of Louisville tends to you know, root for the Kentucky Wildcats, especially the men's basketball team. That's, that's sort of our, <laughs> some would say our professional team. Uh, <laughs> even people who don't like Kentucky might say that that's a professional team or historically that's been one of the things <laughs> yeah. that we've been teased about. But I found myself um, just engaging in a very sharp, um, combative way with people, complete strangers and finding myself getting um, emotionally invested and worked up. And if I scored a really good point, you know, I felt good about it. And then they would, and then I would want to see how are they going to respond to that. So my, my emotions were just sort of tied up until I saw what they responded. And then I was usually very angry about that. And it was the first time that I kind of remember at some point I realized like, what is going on here? Like this one, right. this is not the kind of person that I want to be in general. Uh, and it was the first time that I'd kind of become self-aware of what this particular uh, venue was, how it was changing the way that I behave and mm -hmm. even the way that I think and the way that I feel. Um, and, and that was way back. I don't even know if they have those chat boards anymore. Probably not. Um, but this idea of being um, bifurcated in our the way we're living life, you know, we've got our, our, our analog life and our digital life and, and not having those two things in harmony, seems to be a, a third challenge that is facing, um, I would say, especially facing us who are called to be ambassadors for Christ. So I, I think everyone in, in society is having to wrestle with that, but, but for us, especially, we need to be aware of, of how we're, conducting ourselves in both of these spaces, the real world and this, this online world that we're also all a part of. Absolutely. Uh, you know, in the digital liturgies book that's coming out in September, I, I talk about the digital age kind of creating these three effects, um, distraction. So there's just so much stuff. We're constantly distracted. There's just something more to, to stream or consume. Um, uh, discontent. Uh, we, we kind of see each other. We see each other's kind of curated lives and we think, why, why isn't that life like mm. mine? Like, why aren't my kids that well-behaved and, and happy? Why aren't my vacations like theirs? Uh, so distraction, discontentment, but then also dislocation. 
we're mm. we're constantly trying to be elsewhere than where we are. So our our physical mm. bodies are what God is. It's not simply some obstacle that God gave us so that we could overcome it with technology. Our physical bodies and our physical nature is from our Creator. That's meant to say there is an there's an objective reality to mm. all of us. I am here. I am in Louisville, Kentucky. I am sitting in my house. Uh, my wife lives here. My kids live here. That grounds me. It's, it tells me my identity. Uh, hmm. It it's, gives me something to receive rather than to simply create. And there's, there's an, an inescapable givenness to, to who we are as embodied creatures. And the effects of the internet are essentially to disembody us. Online, I'm not an embodied creature. I'm simply a profile picture. I'm simply whoever I choose to be online. I cannot interact with with other people online as embodied people. The the most I can get would be to like see a video or see a picture. But even that is not quite the same because there's mm-hmm. no there, there's no sense of shared physicality there. And so w- when this happens, when we're distracted, discontent, and dislocated, it it exacts a terrible price. It it promises us that we can create our own identity, that we can be anything we want to be, that we can escape the drudgery or the disappointments of, of who we actually are or where we actually are if we just have the right technology. But but it, it offers these promises and it doesn't deliver. It doesn't satisfy us, which is why we're seeing just scores of people who are reporting anxiety and depression and and suffering, even though they're they're so connected to all these different quote unquote communities online, it's because it's not it doesn't deliver what it actually promises. Instead, it it simply costs us our attention and our peace of mind. Uh, and so, I think the gospel holds out something better. It gives us the promise that we actually don't have to create ourselves. We don't have mm-hmm. to constantly curate this this self made identity. Instead, we can simply receive what God has given us and who God says we are with gratitude because there's grace in that. And he, his love and his uh, confirmation of who we're meant to be is what gives us identity and purpose. Man, I, I love that. I just want to read um, the the final paragraph of the the Substack email that you sent out today from your, your digital litur- uh, liturgies. Uh, blog, because uh, it really it, it goes to that point. You said that in the same way, Christians are going to stand out in the years ahead for being some of the only people who actually hang out with each other. I think we will also stand out for being some of the only people who think at our own expense. To confess your sins is scriptural, and we will be people who can admit fault or acknowledge when our side gets it wrong because we believe that on the other side of that admission lies forgiveness, not digital punishment. Perhaps people will come away from visiting Christian churches shocked not just at the bold assertions of objective truth, but at the bold confessions of our own frailty. And perhaps life among the chatbots will grow strangely dim. I love it, man. And it's so true. It's it's so it's so you would think um, so basic the idea of being present in a physical space with other people as as the default way of of being in community. But it's really that's something that's being eroded. And you know we we've all seen it. We've all participated in it. Where you go into a coffee shop, a place that used to be uh, a, a location where people would gather, people would interact and you go in, everyone's on a smartphone or everyone's on a laptop. 
uh, no one's on a newspaper even, <laughs> you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing physical. Uh, we're all plugged in. And so this idea of, of winning back the idea of being embodied and being present, not just physically in a physical space, but being present with the other person in that space um, is, is something that is going to become more radical because it's, it's becoming more uh, rare. And maybe uh, that would be a good way for us to kind of shift into wrapping up our, our conversation today. You've got a book coming out, Digital Liturgies. What is a di digital liturgy? And then maybe we can wrap up with some some practical ideas of how we can go against the grain when it comes to information technology. Yeah. Um, so a, a digital liturgy is kind of the the name that I've given to these different shaping effects that digital technology tends to has tends to have on us. Um, so similar to a church, uh, a church's liturgy is a set of practices that press certain truths onto us. So when you go into church and your church's liturgy has you called to attention with a reading of scripture, or it calls you to pray a prayer of confession, or you sing a hymn uh, that centers on Christ's deliverance in the gospel, um, those different practices are not simply rote behaviors that we're doing just because we happen to enjoy the sound of our own voices or the sound of the, of the preacher's voice. They are practices that are intentionally designed to take the truth of the gospel and make it plausible to our hearts. We feel in that liturgy that the gospel is real, that it's true, uh, that we are, we are where we should be. Um, and there are secular liturgies as well. I'm indebted to Professor James K.A. Smith and his book, You Are What You Love, The Power of Habit, uh, for identifying the way that even, quote-unquote, irreligious spaces— uh, nevertheless sell us a story of the good life and make certain ideas and behaviors plausible. Um, and I think the internet is a habitat like that too. The internet is a, contains a set of practices, a set of, of feelings and a story that it sells us uh, in order to make certain things feel plausible to our hearts and our minds. So in the book, I identify uh, five of these digital liturgies. These are five uh, kind of characteristics of the digital habitat that are constantly pressing on us a certain feeling, a certain value, a certain behavior. And, and I contrast each of those digital liturgies against the truth of the gospel and Christian wisdom. So how, what is there in scripture that kind of pushes back on these liturgies and reorients our heart toward ultimate truth? Oh man, I love it. And I'm already looking forward to it. When, when does the book come out? September 5th. September 5th. So it's a few months away, but if folks want to begin to engage with your thinking and your writing, um, I would encourage them to subscribe over on Substack. That seems to be, would you say that's the best way for folks to uh, connect with you and, and follow your writing? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm at Substack. The name of the newsletter is uh, Digital Liturgies. Uh, and the book is available for pre-order on uh, Amazon and other booksellers. Yeah. Yes. I'm looking forward to it, man, for sure. I'll also put links in the, uh, the show notes uh, on, under the YouTube video or uh, if you're on Apple Podcasts or any other um, podcast app, I'll put links to your Substack and some of the other resources that um, 
that we've discussed today. Well, do you have uh, some some parting words of wisdom for uh, between now and September? Um, how would you encourage people to to be thoughtful about the liturgies that we end up engaging in? Because I think, you know, as someone who grew up in um, what might be termed a low church, um, I we didn't use the word liturgy. Mm -hmm. And even once I kind of knew what it was in, in my mind, like as you said, um, we can think of it as just an order of service. Well, okay, we we start off with announcements, then we have some singing, then the pastor gives a sermon, that's the liturgy. But liturgy actually goes beyond that. Like you said, liturgy is is meant to shape us. It's meant to shape our affections, to, to reset our attention. And so these are very purposeful and thoughtful ways or practices, as you said, of engaging so that we become recentered and we become a more more like what God has called us to be. So um, are there some ways that we can be thoughtful and purposeful when it comes to our digital liturgies so that we're bringing those into alignment? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one place we all can start is to find someone who's close to us, either a spouse or a friend, uh, someone that we have a real embodied relationship with, and just ask them to be honest with us. Do, do you see me uh, kind of constantly distracted or uh, struggling with discontentment? Or do you, do you think that my attention is dislocated? Um, I think if we open ourselves up to those conversations, we might be surprised how uh, we can help each other. I think, I think people often think that whatever they're struggling with, they're the only one. Like if I'm struggling with, with being hooked on my phone or if I'm struggling with feeling like I'm just burdened down by anxiety, but all of the things that we've talked about today, I'm just the only one and no one else is going to really understand what I'm talking about. And what happens 99.9% .9 of the time is that we're shocked when this comes up with someone else and we think, you too? I thought I was the only one. And so I think Christians really should not underestimate the, the power and the impact of working on this together, of helping each other uh, live more uh, embodied in the moment to, to frame our day with God's wisdom. Um, so in the book, I, I describe scripture as permanent words. So when we log on to the internet, it's, it's a lot of noise. There's so many words, billions of words, and they change every day. But scripture is permanent words. It never goes anywhere. It never changes. It is a rock solid foundation from where we can stand. And I think a big part of Christian discipleship is helping one another to stand on that foundation of God's word and to help each other when, when we're feeling overwhelmed or feeling like we can't, we can't do this by ourselves. Um, so yeah, just taking somebody aside and saying, hey, could you help me with this? And maybe I can help you with this. And practically speaking, what that might look like is, hey, deleting some apps for maybe a couple weeks or even a month just to kind of get your head above water and to see, hey, actually, like this really did resolve a lot of the anxiety that I've been feeling, or I, I do feel like I'm closer to the Lord and, and I'm having better relationships because of it. Um, starting new patterns of uh, and habits. I think Justin Earley, my friend, has a great book called The Common Rule. And The Common Rule kind of outlines different strategies that, that Christians should pursue when they try to cultivate a life of godliness and a life of focus and relationship. 
I think that's a, a really important thing is to build these things into our lives. So take regular breaks, have have regular Sabbaths, dedicate the Lord's Day to, to not being kind of immersed in these apps. You know, start somewhere basic. Don't don't try to um, conquer the digital age by yourself. Uh, just start where God has put you, and I think you will be uh, profoundly surprised, as I have been, uh, on just how powerful our brothers and sisters in the Lord uh, can be in helping us, helping them sharpen one another uh, in this journey of faithfulness. You know, I was thinking this past week as uh, we were leaving church, as someone who grew up in the Bible Belt. Um, I used to hate when people talked about the importance of going to church as if as just going to that service was somehow um, uh, accomplishing something <laughs> in the in the in the respect of of physically going there. But as I've gotten older and especially uh, I would say over the past 15 years and as, as I've becoming become more aware of the that dislocation that you talked about as that the, the third point, um, it's, it's made me mindful that, um, being with other believers in person and engaging is, is critical. It's, it's essential. Like there's, you, you, you are missing a huge part of what it means to belong to Jesus and be part of the church. Like you said, the closest you can get to it is perhaps streaming. And so many people are, are even just streaming church services. And, um, so, so I love the idea of just becoming more rooted in the physical world, being more physically present, um, you know, taking walks. And I would even, I would even take it to reading scriptures. So one, I would say, say, like you said, those permanent words are something that we need to rededicate ourselves to, not just because believers have always benefited from engaging with the revealed word of God. Um, but now more than ever, you know, you talk about being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, uh, man, that is exactly what's happening in our society today, not just by winds of doctrine, but just everything that we're, we're everything that's crying out for our attention and our emotional engagement. They are winds that are tossing us to and fro. And the solution to that is to become rooted in the truth. And we have it. We have it. So we just need to engage with it uh, first and foremost and be anchored. Um, so, but I would go beyond that and say not just reading scripture, but reading a physical Bible. Mm. Um, there is something about um, opening the Bible and uh, reading it that uh, engages us in a way that uh, just having the Bible app, I have the Bible app on my phone. It's a great tool. I, yep. I almost never use it. I use it if I have to, because I just don't have a physical Bible available. Uh, or if I want to screenshot and send a verse, okay, fine. But um, as much as possible, read a physical Bible, engage with the scriptures at that level. If nothing else, it's going to keep you from being distracted um, or uh, tempted to to switch over, and I've I've seen this happen. You know, I'll I'll be I'll be taking a note um, during the sermon, and and then you know, in order to put the note into my phone, then there's a notification, and you can actually find yourself suddenly your your brain is no longer even tracking with what what you've been engaged in. So, um, this idea of just becoming more present in the physical world and with the physical relationships that that God has given us, I think is is a great starting point. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in total agreement with you there. And uh, if, if listeners would be interested in kind of more on the topic of physical Bibles, um, John Dyer, who's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, has a book called People of the Screen, 
and it's kind of a, a dual history of the digital Bible, but then also some very revealing sociological research about the effect that reading the Bible digitally has on how we comprehend it. I highly recommend that book. Okay. I reviewed it for the Gospel Coalition a little while yeah. ago, but a really fascinating book. I think I think hmm. physical Bibles and physical books are an important way that we kind of take back the art of thinking. I think our, uh, it's kind of ironic to say I think, but um, I believe that our our thinking itself is deeply shaped by the format. And and I think when we engage with, with the written word on physical objects, I think it creates a, a stronger sense of reality. Yeah, there's, there's a scroll, there, there's something about scrolling that leads to shallow thinking. It's just this the way it is. And even with the Bible app, you're scrolling. So uh, very simple, like sometimes I'm reading in my physical Bible and I might underline or highlight a thought. And the great thing is I can, I can with a turn of the page, I can glance back at something that was stated or that I underlined uh, last week or two days ago, and I can make right. those connections. It's very difficult to do that if, if you're reading the Bible on a, a Bible app. So thanks, thanks for that. Um, that resource. We'll definitely put that in the notes as well. Well, uh, Samuel, I really appreciate you coming on today and the work that you're doing. I, I do, like I said, I think this is one of the top challenges facing us as believers. So I am appreciative of your writings and the work that you're doing and uh, for you taking an hour out of your time today to uh, to come and share with us. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a great privilege. Really appreciate it. 